0: So please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We continue our series uh, in the book of Philippians that we've entitled To Live is Christ. And so as is our custom, we're going to read uh, the passage first and we're going to pray and then jump into it together. Philippians 1. And verse 3 through to 11. So let's hear the word of the one who sits on the throne. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment And in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Please join me as we pray. Father, we've enjoyed and been helped already by gathering in your name and now we want to come under your word. Please, by your Spirit, help us to do that. Help us to submit our lives to what you're saying to us in the Scriptures and then to live that out in the days ahead, starting today. Father, speak to us, we pray. This is your word. We are here. Help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you take a drive through the Perth hills uh, at various times of the year, one of the things you will probably see at times is this, or something like this. Depending on the season, you may find yourself uh, looking at rows and rows of fruit trees weighed down, ready for the harvest. Uh, it's a beautiful sight, makes the, uh, makes the drive that bit more pleasant, uh, and it, but it's a sight signalling, isn't it? It signals that the end of the season of growth has happened and that the time of harvest has arrived. The end of the season of growth has happened and the time of harvest has arrived. If you look in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul speaks of Christians in a similar way. He speaks of Christians one day arriving at the day, the final day of Christ. At the end of the season of growth, so to speak. Filled, notice, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Picture it like this. Weighed down with the fruit of a transformed life that happened through relationship with Jesus to the glory and praise of God. It's a beautiful picture of salvation, isn't it? A beautiful picture of salvation in full bloom, if you like. And it's, a, it's what God intends for us when He graciously saves us. Friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, this is your destiny. Not that, but what Philippians 1:11 said, right? This is God's end goal for your life, that you would arrive at the day of Jesus filled with the fruit of righteousness and that all glory and praise would go to God. That's his end goal for you. Now you may have heard it said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Have you heard that or something like that? And then people fill in some kind of blank after that, which usually is completely out of context and it's all about the here and now. God does love you and he does have a wonderful plan for your life, but sorry to inform you that it's not always that everything might go swimmingly for you in this life. It's clearly, on a human level, not going swimmingly for Paul. He's sitting in a prison cell with chains on his legs, right? Right? It's not always, doesn't seem to be going that swimmingly for the Philippians either. That's not God's plan for your life necessarily. It's far better than that. It is that you might be fully transformed by his grace and that you might land in his glorious presence. That's his goal. If you're not a Christian here this morning, the good news is this. You can become one today. You can become one today. You can turn from your sins and running your life your own way today. You can put your trust in Jesus who died for you on the cross to pay for your sins today. You can do that and hand control of your life over to him today so that one day you too might land in the presence of God with the fruit of a fully redeemed and transformed life. Now the reality, of course, is this. We're not there yet. Pretty sure most of us know that. We are a work in progress. Sometimes we're very acutely aware that we're still a work in progress. We're still in the season of growth. Harvest time hasn't arrived yet. We're still needing to grow. And we need to do that together as God's people. But how do we do that? What are some of the key things that are vital for that to happen? Well, there are two things I want us to see this morning here in this section of Philippians that God is calling us to in this season of growth between now and when harvest arrives. The first is this. God calls us on that journey to Christ-like love. God calls us to Christ-like love. We see that in verse 7 and 8. Paul writes, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ. Last week, we saw three things about how Paul feels about the Philippians we saw that he is grateful to God for them, we saw saw that he has much joy in the presence of God because of them, and we saw that he was full of confidence. In God's work in them for the future. But here we see, today we see that he has a deep and costly love for them. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Now that probably doesn't need a lot of unpacking, right? The heart is understood to be the centre of our affections, the kind of the seat of our affections, if you like. And Paul says, I hold you there. That's the place they have in his affections and love. He holds them in his heart. He has a deep love for them. And there's a reason for that love. It's the gospel and the partnership they've shared in it. Do you see that in in the second half of verse 7? He says, I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. What's clear is this. They have walked together for a significant period of time in the work of the gospel. They've walked together through thick, and thin for the sake of the gospel. They've walked together in the joys and in the sorrows that are involved in serving Jesus in the gospel. They've walked together in good times and bad times. They've rejoiced together, they've suffered together, and all for Jesus. And especially they've been there for Paul, as he says, from the first day when he first lobbed in Philippi and told them about Jesus and people got saved to 12 or 11 years later when he's sitting in a prison cell writing to them from Rome. They've journeyed together. Paul's writing from that cell, most likely, as I said earlier, chained to a centurion. And the Philippians, well, they seemed like they're probably in the cultural firing line as well for following Jesus in Philippi. If you don't know much about Philippi, Philippi was like a mini Rome. So everything culturally true about Rome was culturally true true about Philippi. It was just like a, a, a small version of Rome. And so the same cultural realities were there. Paul writes to them in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that when I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them, he says, of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. So he's having a pretty hard time for following Jesus. They're having a pretty hard time for following Jesus. And they have shared in that journey together. Did you see what Paul calls it in verse... Um, 8, of oh, sorry, verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of... What? Grace. What? So sharing in the work of Jesus and suffering for the work of Jesus with others who you hold deeply in your heart is grace from god? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. You know for you know probably from other situations and circumstances when you've been through something tough with others and everyone's held on to the end what happens? <laughs> you grow closer and it's the same here and this is what god gave them it's been granted to you paul says for the sake of christ for the glory of christ for the advancement of the truth about jesus in his world that you should not only believe in him oh we like that bit don't we it's been granted that you believe in him and you experience his salvation his mercy his forgiveness his kindness oh, and then but also to Suffer for his sake. So to receive some flack for following Jesus. Because of this, Paul holds them in his heart. Because of this, he has a deep love for them. And this is not just empty words, is it? It's costly, sacrificial love that shows itself in clear and tangible ways. Which is what verse 8 says. Kind of goes on to say. Verse 8, Paul says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. Now, don't just skip over that. There's a little bit of weight in that statement. Do you see where the weight comes from? For God is my witness. What's Paul doing? Well, he's kind of making a bit of an oath. God is my witness as to how I feel about you, that I have this yearning for you all, I want to be with you, I want to see you, I want to encourage you, I want to be encouraged by you, and that's all flowing from what he describes as the affections of Christ. God is my witness, the one who sees his heart, who doesn't just look on the outside, but sees his heart and the one who sees our hearts. The one whose eyes are described in Revelation chapter 1 as flaming fire, who has this penetrating sight that nothing is hidden for from him and everything is laid open before him. Right this minute as you sit there. Yet he still loves you. And died for you and rose again for you and has forgiven your sins and every one of the things that you're thinking in this last hour that are dishonouring to him. God is my witness. He's not the one who is not impressed or fooled by empty words or religiosity or churchianity. Now you might be able to fool other people, but you can't fool the one who sees. And he's the one to whom we must all give an account. Paul says, he's my witness. What is he witnessing? He's witnessing his Christ-like love for them. He's witnessing what's happening in the heart of Paul for them. And what is that? He yearns for them with the affections of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Sounds a bit weird. I love you with someone else's love. Well, that's actually the case. There's two aspects to this that are really interesting. The word affections here is quite weak in terms of the translation. It actually means entrails or bowels. If you go back and read the King James Version, you'll see that they use the word bowels. The bowels of Jesus is how I feel about you. It's like it's all a bit weird, right? It's weird to us. It wasn't weird to them because the entrails or the gut was understood as the, uh, of, as the seat of the, of the tender affections. Things like compassion, things like mercy were understood to come from the, from the gut, if you like. So he says, I love you with the affections, With I love you from there, but with what? The affections of Jesus. So this love is deep on the one hand, but friends, notice it's divine on the other hand. It's a love that he didn't have, that he now does have. I mean, who are we talking about here? We're talking about Paul, right? Did he always love the church? Did he always love the people of God? No, he didn't. Quite the opposite. He hated the church. He hated the people of God. He was out to destroy it. And he just kind of had this little encounter on the road to Damascus with someone called Jesus, who turned his life around called him out of darkness into his light, opened his blind eyes, called him into, ironically enough, gospel ministry to go and plant churches, build up churches, establish churches, care for churches, long for churches with Jesus' own love for the churches. He loves them deeply with the love of Christ. That's what happens. If you're a believer today, here, to some degree that ought to be true of us also. We ought to have a deep love for the people of God that comes from our relationship with their Saviour and ours. where we love the people of God, not with our own kind of love that we've whipped up and worked up and grit our teeth to keep going with, but with love that comes from Jesus and flows from him to others. And if you think about Jesus' love, it's not, it's not kind of fluffy, is it? It's costly, costly. It's sacrificial. It's redemptive. It's other person centered. It's unique. It's glorious. You see, God calls us to this, to this Christ like love. It's part of being saved it's part of being christian i mean sure becoming a christian is a call to salvation through jesus no question it's a call to repent and believe to turn from our self-rule and our sins no question it's a call to look to jesus to save you from your rebellious self-rule and your sins no question but at the very same time it's a call to a transformed heart that loves like jesus loves A love that you never had, but that you have received through him. Oh, and by the way, it's a fire that you will need to keep stoking. Because if you don't stoke it with the gospel, it will die down. Christ-like love is the first thing God calls us to. Now, every now and again, we all get to go, well, probably, I'm assuming, to uh, the odd wedding here and there. And often at these weddings, they trot out the classic wedding verse or verses. Do you know the ones I mean? First Corinthians 13. It goes like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, man, I'm pretty impressive, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have, we spoke about generosity earlier. If I give all I have, including my body, To be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So we go to these weddings and they read out these verses and we see the couple there and we're like, isn't it lovely? Don't really listen to the verse. I mean, there are some good principles in 1 Corinthians thirteen for relationships, don't get me wrong, but it is taken completely out of context because it is actually a rebuke to people who sought status and power in the church but had no care for the church. Paul says of that no matter what you do if you don't love the people of God in the sight of God it's worthless. I better get on my knees and ask Jesus for his affections for his people if I'm lacking them, right? <laughs> and I want to tell you, I leak. Right? God may pour his love into me for, eat for, for others, but it, it keeps leaking out. And then you get some difficult things happen along the way and some relational conflicts and whatever else, and the, the, the tank starts to go down. This is an ongoing supply, clearly, that we need. So if God is my witness and God is your witness, as you sit here this morning, what's he witnessing in your heart when it comes to the people of God, the bride that he purchased with his own blood? What place does the church, the people of God, have in your heart? Do you hold other Christians in your heart? Obviously you can't hold everybody, you don't know everybody in a a church this size, but there should be at least a few. Maybe your growth group or some people that you've developed relationships with, however. Or is your heart just focused on, I don't know, worldly pursuits? Are you serving in Jesus serving Jesus in his church because of your love for the church? Are you investing in the people of God because of your love for the people of God? Is it about position or power? Is J- Jesus changing your heart so that your affections for others are literally his? And it's a miracle of your salvation that they're there. And you just get the joy of expressing them. Do you see that serving and following Jesus with others, though that may involve suffering and joy and the need to persevere and the need to continue on, is actually God's grace to you and to me? It's his undeserved kindness. Did I deserve to be a part of the church? No way. I spent time throwing rocks on the roof of the church. How on earth did I get here? How on earth did you get here? It wasn't because you woke up one day and made a wise decision. It's because of the grace of God. God is calling us to Christ-like love. Secondly, God is calling us to christ oriented prayer. Look at verse 9 to 11 of Philippians. I need to get back there. I'm still in Corinthians. Philippians 1, 9 to 11. And so, that's, yep. that's Colossians. This happened last week. Philippians 1, 9 to 11. Here we go. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. As we said at the beginning in verse 11, Paul has a clear desire for them in terms of the day, the harvest. He longs to see them living pure and blameless lives now so that on the day they might be there filled with the fruit of righteousness. And so his prayers are, notice, in sync with that. They're in sync with that. What does he pray for them? He prays that their love might abound more and more that they might have a deep and growing love for God and each other. And again, notice it's a particular kind of love. It's not just a feeling or emotion that'd be fleeting, here one day, gone on the next. It's love with knowledge and discernment. And it's a love, notice, that results, verse 10, in radically changed lives. It's transforming love. So it's growing love. It's not hot and cold. It's not here one week, gone the next. It's steady, it's deepening and it's increasing and abounding. It's love filled with knowledge, most likely knowledge of God. So it grows out of knowledge of God. Not knowledge about God, notice, but knowledge of God. Of God, that is of relationship with God, knowing Him personally and deeply through Jesus. It's love that's filled with that kind of knowledge. And and, and because of that, it's a discerning love. So it's love that helps you see the world as God sees it, it's love that gives you what we might call a biblical worldview. It's love that means you are enabled to discern truth from error, good from evil, light from darkness. It's love that enables you to navigate this life with wisdom and insight from God's Word. And as a result of all that, it's transforming love. It means that you end up being able to approve what is excellent. What is excellent? And as a result, you pursue purity and blamelessness as you fix your gaze on the day of Jesus. It sees our lives focused on God's will and obeying it from hearts changed by Jesus. It sees us living lives of purity, lives that are focused on the day of Jesus. And it sees our lives bearing the fruit of righteousness through the power of Jesus. And ultimately... It sees us living lives that bring glory and praise to God because of Jesus. Notice this is how Paul prays for them. Notice he doesn't really pray much about their circumstances, which is maybe a little bit unlike us. He doesn't pray so much about what they're going through, but he prays for what they need for what they're going through. He prays for what they need so that they might flourish in what they're going through. Because for him, there are bigger, far more important things at stake. He wants them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ on that day. So, these are Christ-orientated prayers that he needs to pray for, and so do we. These are Christ-focused prayers that result, priorities that, fo- that result in Christ-focused prayers. If you ask yourself the question, what are the priorities of these prayers, then that tells you what the focus of the prayers should be. So well, what are we seeing here this morning? We're seeing a call to Christ-like love, and we're seeing a call to Christ-orientated prayer. They are two ways in which we continue to grow in this season of growth until harvest, until harvest comes. And it's something we're meant to do corporately and collectively. Again, we so often just hear the Bible and we think, me and my relationship with God, but more often than not, they're written to churches who, yes, are full of individuals, but they're written to groups of Christians. Christ-orientated prayer. So, how many of you remember these things? Maybe you even have them. I think people still use them on occasion. I think sometimes because they're better than having a phone mounted in a... a, um, whatever those things are called that you mount phones in, in your car. Um, I remember we got given or lent one of these when we went on our long service leave over to the east coast of Australia towing a caravan. And I was so glad we had that thing because U-turns with a caravan, not a lot of fun, not a lot of fun. But the thing about these things, which are called GPSs, is before you leave, the very first thing you do is what? Type in the destination. Because until you know the destination that you're meant to go to, you haven't got a clue which way you should be going. Is it south? Is it north? Is it southeast? Is it reverse, forward? I don't know. You put the destination in and then the direction becomes clear. That's what's happening here. Filled with the fruit of righteousness at the day of Jesus to the glory and praise of God. There's the destination. What's the direction? What's the coordinates? What's what's the, the pathway to that? It's following Jesus together in these ways with Christ-like love and Christ-orientated prayers for one another. What's the focus of your prayers? Are you praying? Is the day of Jesus a big enough event on your calendar that you pray about it? Is it big enough on mine? What kind of things do you pray for if you are praying? Are they Christ-focused prayers? Or have you fallen into the trap that we can all fall into and they're more actually comfort-focused prayers? And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with us praying about hardships we're going through and asking God to, to, to give us relief and all those sorts of things. Does the destination of the day of Christ shape your prayers? How do we pray for each other as a church? I don't know. When you come to the prayer meeting or you think about praying for the church, do you, do you kind of go, I don't even know what, where do I start? Uh, well, what, what, what should I even pray for for our church? Well, verse 9 would be a good place to start. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That wouldn't be a bad one. Do you want to know what to pray for each other? Actually, could I ask you as you've heard God's word today about praying for the church? Could I ask you that, to resolve to pray verse 9 for some with some kind of regularity? I reckon that would be great, wouldn't it? Are you able to discern what is excellent? From God's perspective. In other words, are you growing in this love that flows from a growing knowledge of God? We said a few weeks ago, we only see ourselves clearly and our world clearly when we see God clearly. That's what this is growing in the knowledge of God that then gives you discernment, gives you clarity. How do you get your bearings in this life? Well, knowledge of God and the day of Jesus, the destination. Is it shaping how you pray? Is it shaping your decision making? What you're living for, what you're investing in, what you're, where the focus is of your time that God has given you, your talents that God has given you, your treasure that God has given you. We are in the season of growth right now. We are not there yet. One day, it'll be harvest time. That's going to be a great day. Can you imagine a multitude that no one can number from every tribe, nation, language and tongue filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God? Can you just imagine that for a second? That's harvest time. But it's growth time now. And God is calling us to Christ-like love and Christ-orientated prayer. How will you respond to what God calls us to today in his word? Let's just take a moment of quietness just to think about that. Ask God to give you the affection of Jesus for others. Ask God to give you an orientating grasp of harvest time. Perhaps confess where you've been distracted by trivial realities that will all just fall away at the day of Jesus. Let's take a moment and then I'll hand back to the team. Father, we just come before you this morning and I'm reminded of what was on my school reports growing up so often. Tony is easily distracted. And I know that's not just true of me. It's true of all of us. With all the tokens and pleasures and allurements and distractions of this world, we confess that we get distracted. We lose sight of the weighty things, of the glorious things, of the days, the things that you have in store for us, having redeemed us through Jesus. And all of these things quieten down and dumb down the clear call that you have on our lives and how we live now so Lord we want to turn please reorientate us around your son, around what he's doing now, the good work that he has begun and is continuing and will one day complete in our lives when he returns Father Father Help us, grant us supernatural love for each other that comes from you, that is Christ-like, not natural, not what we did, had previously, but something beautiful. Father, please help us in all of these things. Every time we see fruit on a tree, Lord, remind us of the fruit of righteousness that you desire and intend to be all over our lives in increasing measure. We thank you for the church that you have brought about. We thank you for this church, for our church, for every person here this morning that you love, that you have sent your son to redeem And that you do have a plan for our lives. And we've seen it this morning. Give us joy in these things we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen.